Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Klesk with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, Mishmash. <laughs> How you doing, Ron? I'm great, Ed. How are you? I'm great. We are pre-recording this show, one of the few times that we've done that because of my in Sane baseball travel with my son going well, but uh, just not going to work out for this Friday. And we just decided that we wanted to clear out some of our stacks that we no normally do on our bonus show, but have been building up, especially articles that require a little bit more treatment than we usually give them. Mm -hmm. So uh, in keeping with our miscellany shows and bric-a-brac shows, uh, you know, I, I went and I found the, the, the synonyms for miscellany and we don't <laughs> worry, we're never going to run out of names for these, the, these type of shows, Ron. So this one is called Mishmash. Uh, what do you got for us, Ron? Uh, I got all sorts of stuff, Ed, but because it's July 31st, Monday, mm -hmm. we are celebrating the 111th birthday of Milton Friedman. Happy birthday in heaven to Milton. Yes. Uh, and, you know, he wrote in a 1955 essay, he made the case for school vouchers. And of course, that essay found its way into capitalism and freedom. Um, and wow, you really have to give him credit. Um, that idea finally took off. You know, he created the Melton and Rose D. Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. That's now called Ed Choice. I guess they changed the name. And in 2023, this year, they introduced the one, two, threes of school choice. They reviewed 187 studies on school choice across the United States. These are academic peer-reviewed studies that overwhelmingly conclude that school choice programs have a positive effect on student test scores, educational attainment, parent satisfaction, school safety, fiscal outcomes, and racial in, uh, integration and diversity. How's that? Um, and of course, Friedman's social responsibility of business is, is making a comeback, his famous Wall Street um, uh, or uh, I forget the where he originally published that, but that famous essay that we've talked a lot about. Um, Wall Street Journal Ed had a story last month. The number of earnings calls where executives mentioned environmental or social initiatives has been declining since the first quarter of 2022. It's been on the way down. Um, and of course, Friedman's greatest policy victory was the end of military conscription. Uh, Nixon appointed him to a Blue Ribbon Commission in uh, 1969. By 1973, it was gone. And I know we might have mentioned this before, but I just want to get this on the record. This is so good. When General William Westmoreland called on Friedman, he, uh, he argued with him. He said he did not want to command an army of mercenaries. And Friedman responded, General, would you rather command an army of slaves? If those who voluntarily enlisted were mercenaries, Friedman said, then I, sir, am a mercenary professor, and you, sir, are a mercenary general. We are served by mercenary physicians, 
We use a mercenary lawyer and we get our meat from a mercenary butcher. Friedman was one of freedom's greatest and pithiest champions. Um, this guy ends by saying more Friedman means more freedom. <laughs> so happy birthday, Melton. That, that, what a great, that uh, he won as soon as he said that the debate was over. Yes. And he probably did it with a smile. I don't think I've ever seen the actual <clears throat> clip of it, but I'm, I but he always either. did <laughs> Yep, yep. always had a smile and look, it, He's one of these guys, Ron, that that, yeah, it's going to take decades for us to implement all of his stuff. He was so far ahead of his time with regard to this. I mean, I think school vouchers are, are just beginning to get started and they're just going to continue to roll. It has to. And like you said, the evidence is overwhelming. And I think what happened with covid is that parents saw what was going on in the classroom right in their living room and said, wait a minute here. And look, I, I want to just give a shout out to teachers who who made their way through COVID. None of them signed up for online teaching, but more many of them did not. Right. And right. I understand that that was a huge challenge for them. But I will say that it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the the the, the teachers that was a problem, but the curricula itself. Sure. And that's what I think parents objected to. And I think that turning this over to the market is going to be a great idea. I know that uh, Randy Weingarten is exercised about this. She was, I, I saw a clip of her just last week screaming about, they don't want to end, they don't want, they, you know, they don't want to uh, reform school. They want to end school. school. They, and she literally said that, that they, they want to end schooling. No, it's no, crazy. nobody, nobody wants to end schooling. What parent wants to do this? And when you talk about this in terms of, well, what do parents have in terms of the expertise of, of what should or should not be taught to the, the kids, it's still going to be turned over to a teacher's organization. You're just going to, parents are just going to be able to decide. And I can't, the, 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 the objection always is, well, what if there's parents that don't, you know, care for their kids? Well, they're not going to do well anyway. I mean, I hate to tell you. They're not doing well now. They're not doing well now. So that that's not going to be an argument. And I will say that there's plenty of people who really want this choice. And I think it's it, the, la the last polling that I've seen. And of course, you can't trust polls on everything. But the last polling that I've seen is, is it's overwhelming in the African-American community that Absolutely. they want this as well. Absolutely. And this this is one of the things that's going to be the keys to fixing education in this country is moving to a voucher system. Or I'll even go so far as to an educational savings account program yeah. where, you, you know, I, so, I heard. Corey DeAngelis talking, I forget the podcast, but it was a long interview. In fact, I think it was Charlie's Charles Cook. And um, he was talking about the, the ESAs and how ESAs differ from vouchers. And this is what I asked Brian Kaplan, mm -hmm. but they have an ESA program in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And what's neat about it, Ed, is, you know, he said, you can put so much money into it. You get so much money, but then if you don't use it, like, you know, maybe through the uh, middle school or something, you know, it's a little bit cheaper, it rolls over. So when the kid gets to high school and it is probably more expensive in high school, you can use it for that. So it gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of finances. And I just think it makes so much sense. And we're seeing state after state, after state, after state, roll this out. I mean, th that proves to you that this is a very popular program across all political sectors. Correct. And one of the things that I've, as I frame this, and when I was running for office, this was oftentimes a conversation that came up. And th what usually was, was took the wind out of sails, especially those more on the left, is when I was said, well, I'm in favor of, of a single payer system for <laughs> education. 
and they're like, well, what, what do you mean? Yeah. I'm for single payer education. Uh, fine. The, if, if we're going to spend money on education, it's going to be the taxpayers doing it. Let's do it. It is a single payer system. Exactly what you want for healthcare. Mr. And Mrs. Person on the left, exactly what you want for healthcare. Yep. Yep. And single that usually payer. shuts down the argument pretty quickly. Cause there's <laughs> not single a, there's, there's, it's yeah. a challenging response, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, it's uh yeah, no, I'm I'm really encouraged. I'd love to see. I'm lo- I'm loving this the way it's rolling out across the different states. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh. Oh boy, uh, and I got so much here. Uh, <laughs> this one, this this one, th- this was an incredible article, and this is long, and it's called "The Modern Quest for Immortality," and it's by Lionel Shriver. Now. Is that she's a novelist and columnist for Britain's Spectator magazine. She's got a recent book out there, Abominations, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. But she's talking about here, you know, the whole idea about anti-aging and stopping the aging process and, you know, living to 200 and all of this. And I, I can't do this article justice because it's probably 15,000 words. I mean, wow. it's a long article and it's very ponderous. It's very well-written. It's beautifully written actually. And it just makes you think, but let me just give you some of the highlights. Just these were the things that struck me. And I want to see your reaction to them because I'm not sure what to think of some of them, but she says with eternity at stake, say we could look to 150 or 200 with that at stake, who would volunteer for the military? Mm. I mean, this raises the cost of taking risks. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, sure I think does. That's a very interesting point. Pr- prone to cherish safety above all else would be easy prey for political tyrants. Policing, firefighting would hold little appeal. OK, that was a good point. What would we do with ourselves with all this ex- extra design? Another iPhone, <laughs> the burden of finding purpose and meaning could grow unbearable. Why today's longevity crusaders derive uh their own sense of usefulness and direction from fixating on the defeat of death. Were they to succeed, they'd need a whole new quest, right? Where do you go after this? You've, you've already visited every country in the world. What do you, there's nothing left to do except go again. <laughs> um, and then she po- po- points out that our most pressing threat would be boredom. Interest can wear out. I've simply had enough red wine, right? Um, And she says, devoted couples who now go the distance for six or seven decades might find it challenging to stay together once robotically competing, completing each other's sentences. Um, Even more forbidding than getting sick of the love of your life, getting sick of yourself. Um, So she talks about the medical hurdles. Humans may prove um, not physically suited to, to vastly longer lives. The rules of economics, when you flood the market with any good, right, it, it plunges in value. So what do we do with uh, infinite infinite time, basically? And then her last point, is, or one of her last points is, we can't rule out the possibility that eternal life would drive a significant proportion of humanity insane. The mortal life is inherently tragic. The inevitability of death bestows poignancy and pathos on the most otherwise ordinary existence just really makes you think 
about what would happen if we did live to 200 or 300. Yeah, a, a couple of quick comments on this one. It, it, it An enormous amount of my concern of it would be about what is the quality of that extra time. Yes, sure. But uh, she, she gives the thought experiment. Assume we can get over the metal. Assume, issues. right. Assume, so yeah, as, right. assume, assume that. Right, right. Then the next the next thing I would have is it just it, it wouldn't be instantaneous that we would go from, you know, average age of, of 78 True. to an average age of 150. Sure. She so talks about that, too. So I would I would think that as it was incremental, we would make adjustments. But then again, you know, we haven't made adjustments to the Social Security system. Uh, which from an economic standpoint would be pretty challenging. If the quality of life were to increase, I mean, do you work to a hundred then? I mean, and can you continue to find meaning in that work? Uh, I think that there's a, there's a great uh, something to be said for knowledge transfer that would, would make us all wealthier. If people live longer, especially those who are wise can do things like share their knowledge with a greater pool of, of people over time. So I, I think that there's there's some knowledge issues there that I don't know if she addresses, but I think the knowledge problem would be one that would be uh, of interest. So it would be she she does point out, you know, Steve Jobs would still be with us, but so would the neighbor who plays blaring mariachi music at 3 a.m. every night. <laughs> well, <laughs> so there he you talks go. about obnoxious people, but you know, um, <laughs> it, it's just really interesting to think about some of the implications. You know, it's kind of like the reverse exercise of thinking about a shrinking worldwide population that we may be facing and right. then thinking about this I, I i thought of the knowledge thing too right more knowledge more learning more growth you know more invention more innovation uh be this would be an interesting um thing to get gail pulley's reaction on um, yes absolutely maybe, so um, perhaps when he gets back on we'll we'll have to ask him about it but ron we're up against our first break want to remind those of you you can Give us a shout at asktsoe at verisage.com. Send that one email and that will reach both of us. The website is The Soul of Enterprise. You can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, has Patreon shout outs available. And you can get one at a certain level like Stan Essexon of New Age Neuro did. Your patients will be grateful. Your CPA will be amazed. Check him out at newageneuro.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about all sorts of stuff, Ed. Um, I'm going to throw something at even. Mishmash. I'm going to throw something at you out of left field. This is from the summer of 1994. Um, I forget the publication. I think it was, uh, I forget. Oh, it was The Question. It's called, the, well, it's called The Question. And it was by Eugene Genovese. He's a historian. And he points out, and I think Jonah referenced this in one of his podcasts, which is why I went and got it. He said, for many years, I have lived in dread of having to answer the question. He capitalizes it. Curiously, no one has asked it. What did you know? And when did you know it? He said, at the age of 15, I became a communist. Although I was expelled from the party in 1950, at age 20, I remained a supporter of the Soviet Union until there was nothing left to support. He said, we broke all records for mass slaughter, piling up tens of millions of corpses in less than three quarters of a century. When the Asian figures are properly calculated, the aggregate to our credit may reach the seemingly incredible numbers widely claimed. Those big on multiculturalism might note that the great majority of our victims were non-white. We have a disquieting number of corpses to account for. Uh, and then he talks about going to AEI. And who knows, maybe Jonah saw this. This was in 1992. And he was really paranoid that during Q&A where they were going to ask him the question. And they didn't. Um, of course, he had, a, he had a canned response for him. But he said, look, we've never been called upon to explain ourselves. Um, and he says, Am I crazy to think that if we do not understand why and how we did what we did, we shall certainly end by doing it again and again? What did we know and when did we know it? We knew everything essential and knew it from the beginning. This is an incredibly poignant essay, you know, that basically just, he says, the horrors did not arise from perversions of radical ideology, but from the ideology itself we were led into complicity with mass murder. And he ends by saying our indictment of class injustice, racism, and the denigration of women has not been rendered less urgent by the failure of socialism. The millions of our martyred comrades who fought against those enormities need not have died in vain, but they will indeed have died in vain. If we refuse to face our past squarely subject, our basic premises to stern review own up to all that has gone wrong and take the measures necessary to guarantee against the next round of the same old story. I just found this incredibly powerful. I've known about this guy. His wife was also, um, what was the name again? 
uh, Eugene Genovese, his wife, mm-hmm. I forget her name, Genovese. Uh, oh, she's another scholar, another historian, mm-hmm. I think on the antebellum period, if I remember right. Um, really thought provoking, both incredible scholars. Uh, but I just, you know, this was kind of like a mea culpa for him, but it, it's just incredibly poignant. And yeah, you, I mean, these people, these, these academics who supported this all the way, I mean, him all the way up to the failure of the Soviet Union in 92 or whatever it was. Um, wow. Talking about a worldview collapsing. And and what was the turning point? Did it say, and did you talk about it in the article? What was the thing that shifted his, his mind from, I mean, after the collapse, obviously, if he supported up to and including the collapse, what was the, the impetus that made him say, maybe I need to rethink this? You know, he didn't really get into that very deeply, but, um, but, but, but what he's saying is we knew this all along. We knew this was bad, but we were just covering up for it. Oh, you know, I mean, you, well, yeah, you want to make an omelet, you know, you need to break some eggs. Right. That's the, I mean, it, it really is. Uh, it, this reminds me of, uh, you know, Kotkin's point that reading all the papers from the communist party. And he said, look, they believe this. Mm-hmm. They were communists. They, believed, they were, they believed they were building a new man, a new society, a new utopia. And this is really very reflect. He got a lot. I think Jonah brought this up in the context of he got a lot of heat from his friends when he published this and was excommunicated, you know, from the left. And uh, so it made me, and, and I've heard about this essay before, but I never went and actually read the original source. And I just wanted to share that. I thought it was incre- incredibly poignant. So we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it it is it's a little overwhelming, and and I'm sure that the the, the friends were thinking, well, we can't we can't admit to this, so they they wanted to say, hey, d- d- continue in in the denial of it as well. It is really interesting when you think about it that the Soviet Union hasn't accounted for its past. I mean, at least Germany, you know, has done things to, you know, rectify or or not rectify, but you know, uh, deal with it, admit their wrongs mm-hmm. in the past. Soviet Union has done nothing. I mean, they, they, Putin outlawed the one, what was that foundation memorial that tries to keep the victims of communism, you know, mm-hmm. alive and he outlawed it. Yeah. So yeah, let's not deal with the past. It's too ugly. I mean, yeah. we deal with the past in this country every day. We have conversations about it. Russia continues to be what an enigma wrapped in a (laughs) riddle inside of a mystery. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As uh, Winston Churchill said, and I, and I think it's, it's still wacky over there too. I mean, obviously, I mean, there's some, they, they, they really, they, they changed who's in, in control, but they really haven't changed the fundamental way that the modus operandi of the country works going all the way back to the czar. I mean, that, that that has not changed who's who's it, been in charge has but I, I guess it shows you how hard it is to to change a culture you know which is which to me makes deirdre's work so interesting because just the language and the persuasion and some of mm-hmm. that changing uh, just yeah it's really interesting well, and we're we're seeing some of, some of that in Niger too. With the, I mean, the, the, there's been a coup over there. I don't know if you saw. I've been reading reading about that, 
and it it just seems that that's that's the makeup of the company. Every time they have a democratically elected gov- government, it's only a matter of time before the military reasserts its authority. And it's just yeah, cycle continues. And and how do you break that? And that's that's where the cultural thing comes in. And it is. It's got to be a language shift. Got to be a language shift. So. All right, Ron, we got about a little over five minutes left in this segment. So you got, you got another one you want to talk about? I, I do. And, and I mentioned this to you before, but I thought it'd be a good time to deal with it. This is the, it's an article out of National Review by Teresa Shaheen. I think she's a think tank uh, person. And uh, it's called Right Sizing China. This is the one that talked about all the issues going on in China. Another really, really long article that I'm not going to be able to do justice to, but she says, China under the Communist Party is a nation in long-term decline. And uh, she points out the realities. It's much weaker than it wants the world to believe. And she thinks our focus on Taiwan is, is actually diverting our attention from this issue. Um, she, she goes, Western leaders, we've been deceiving ourselves for decades, you know, since Deng, uh, Deng Jinping era. You know, mm-hmm. he's the one that kind of reformed everything. She goes, let's not forget that he also instituted, yep, sure, he brought free markets. Mm -hmm. He he also brought the country the one-child policy. Right. Um, And she goes, you know, their grand infrastructure projects have burdened the country with debt. You know, their debt exceeds their GDP 300%, which is massive. I mean, ours is 100 and something, I think, Mm -hmm. 120. They're at 300%. Tandem and square. She talks about that. She talks about, um, you know, she goes, the, the primary objective of course, of the CCP is to remain in power, but she says, China has big problems, declining aging population. So according to Nick Everstat, who we've had on the show, it's set to decline to 587 million by 2100. So from 1.3. So that's almost, I mean, it's more than half. Mm-hmm. Um, growth depends on working age cohorts. So the 15 to, you know, 49 cohorts mm-hmm. and Everstats pointed out that this group is going to decline 15 to 29 age group. It's going to decline by 75 million, 30 to 49 is going to decline by a hundred million. And these of course are the peak ages for product productivity, innovation, and managerial expertise. Another inadequacy is their educational system. I did not, I wasn't really familiar with this part. Um, more than half of China's middle school age students are unable to advance to high school or choose not to. A third don't complete junior high. Some 400 million future working age Chinese may be classified as cognitively handicapped. That's interesting. And those are big numbers. I mean, the, the, the numbers here are just amazing, right? I mean, everything's um, a big number it, in China. In China. Just, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same with India. Um, and, and she said of the number who go to urban educated individuals who do go to college, they're well in excess of the jobs available to them. The unemployment rate, Ed, for the college educated 20%. That's huge. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Lack of access to natural resources energy. So they're totally, or not totally, but dependent on Russia. This is why they embrace Russia. They have a water challenge. 20, they're 20% of the global population, but they're about 7% of the world's fresh water. So there's a water crisis. Their per capita water supply is about half the UN threshold for water scarcity. 
which also exasperates their food insecurity challenges. Their internal production of food supplies just 50% of the food needed by the population for a minimally globally accepted standard. So they're dependent on imports for food and for fertilizer. And of course they have banks that are going to come under pressure because of the collapsing housing and property markets. Um, and then she goes on to point out that many companies are reducing their exposure to China. It's no longer the low cost producer. So we got, you know, Apple moving to Vietnam and other places. So that's hitting them. And uh, she goes, our approach, our U.S. policymakers approach to China should be, we should be confident in the knowledge that communism and central planning will always fail to measure up to democratic capitalism. And, um, you know, and Eberstadt points out that even if the country has a zero GDP growth, they can do enormous damage, right? And he, point, he points to North Korea. Um, so anyway, um, she points also points out that, you know, half a billion Chinese outside the cities live on a few bucks a day. Um, but she goes, we need to think about China uh, going into a sustained and irreversible decline relative to the West. And how well are we prepared for those tail risks of such a scenario? Yeah. And that, that uh, Kotkin has made that Stephen Kotkin has made that point on, on, uh, uh, on common knowledge, but uh, you know, the, this is, I, I think just to, to say it more broadly, as much as I despise the two party system, it's still way better than a one party system. <laughs> yes. For sure. And, you know, we always talk about China in terms of it invincible and, oh, the AI, they're going to beat us in AI and they're becoming a military superpower. Yeah, but they're centrally planned and they have a lot of these issues that mm -hmm. nobody talks about. So I just, it was a very thought provoking article. And I just really, I like the way she laid out the issues going on in the country that you don't read a lot about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this, this manifests itself in the United States too, in a, in a way when you have one party rule in, in these cities for so long, it, when you have people, and even if it's not just one person, but a group of people who, who insulate themselves at the top, corruption is inevitable and it's going to, it's, it causes the destruction of the state. This is again, switching back and forth between the two parties and is, is in, incredibly powerful for us. The, I, despite, I, despite the fact that the, 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 the problems that we've had with the current set of politicians. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's the same thing with school vouchers and these ESAs. It's the threat that they could mm -hmm. lose their customers and right. it's the com competitive threat that makes them improve. Yep. Well, we are up against our break. I want to remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Website is the Solar Brand Enterprise. Our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE. You can listen to the show commercial free as well as our bonus episodes, which we record each week. That Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind? Find one at 90minds.com. Right now, a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about a mishmash of stuff. And then I've got another one here that I've really been dying to talk to you and, and you and Greg about. <clears throat> this is out of The Economist. It's one of their special reports from April 22nd of this year. And obviously, it's on the car industry, so it's talking a lot about SUVs. But it's, it's worth it to point out that global car production peaked at 73 million passenger vehicles in 2017. In 2022, it was it dropped to 62 million, so it went from 73 million to 62. Um, McKinsey is estimating anywhere between 70 million and 95 million by 2035. Uh, Europe and, and America have certainly peaked. China is likely to do so soon, and they're really focusing on um, legacy car makers are facing a big challenge because the point of the article is in the future car brands will be differentiated mainly by the experience of using them more by their software than their hardware. That's a great point, mm -hmm. right? It's, we're going to start thinking about the tech stack, right? In the car and, and the, the user experience of, of all the technology rather than, you know, the horsepower and the performance and all of that. So yeah, yeah, and that's why I don't I don't think that that Apple is ruled out on the car industry. I think that they still may be working on it. I, I, I think very I think very right. possible. Yeah. Yep, and they're predicting not all legacy firms are going to survive the coming transfer transformation. Of course, they lay out the top you know producers. It's Toyota and Volkswagen and Hyundai and you know General Motors and Ford's up there, Honda's up there. Um, but it goes on to point out that Toyota's Tesla's arrival in 2003 began this the EV revolution in earnest. The um, EVs and uh, hybrids went from 0.2 percent of used car of new car sales a decade ago to 13 percent in 2022. 
And by 2025, they think about a quarter of sales will be EVs. And it will be closer to 40% in Europe and China. Well, I can tell you that I'm accounting for that because I have a Tesla and I also have a, a Honda CRV that we we just bought. That's a hybrid. So it's a hybrid. It's, it's yep. a hybrid. And, and Greg's got two Teslas, right? Two Teslas, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, GM wants to be all electric by 2035, Ford by 2030. Um, so, <laughs> and they also say that by the end of this decade, the sticker price of most EVs will be equal to that of the ICE cars, the internal combustion engine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and look, the, the battery technology continues to improve. I've heard reports that we're getting close to a 1000 mile range battery, which quite frankly is probably more than you can, you can and should drive in one day. Right. Right. So that then becomes the limit, the theoretical limit. Now, how fast can you get that charged? That, that, that's getting faster and faster too there. So it's, it, it's, it's going to be interesting. Of course, I, I think the, the environmental movement has finally come around to, you know, turns out that these electric vehicles aren't all that great for the environment. You mm -hmm. know what? It's amazing. I, I, I mean, who knew? Who knew? Who was saying this like was years, ago? This years I, ago? I, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know. You know, they did point up, they did talk about the battery supply a lot. And VW's chief says the battery supply is the biggest constraint right now on the transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, you guys have talked about this, the Tesla superchargers opening up their network to other cars, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Ed, that's going to generate $25 billion a year for Tesla. <laughs> So this little this little Twitter X thing, just this little side project, it really doesn't matter. It's like, uh, what's forty four billion? Eh. They say charging could go from sixty six billion in twenty twenty three to three hundred billion by twenty twenty seven. Most of it, mo most of it to most Tesla because Tesla. they got yeah, yeah. And they also talked about this is where I got pulled the number that China right now today has about three hundred EV makers. So we were equating that to our early days in the car industry, you know, when there were hundreds and it boiled down to four or whatever. And what this article got into as well is that the profitability um, can be reached at much smaller volumes. You know, this was the challenge that DeLorean faced, right? When he tried to do the DeLorean in Ireland or whatever, he just couldn't make enough of them to make a difference to bring the cost down. But the EVs, they're not subject to the same constraints because they don't have a, the number of moving parts right. that a, an ICE engine has. I mean, an ICE engine's got like 10,000 parts. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think that includes the, all the chips. I'm just talking yeah. about the parts. The, the actual parts. No, and, and they're getting more and more complex, not less. Absolutely. Whereas, whereas I think the, the electric engine is, is, is a very basic concept. It's really, it, yes, it, they, you can, you can change it. You can increase the, the, the torque and the, the velocity and all that stuff by, but, but the basic concept is remains unchanged completely. Um, and it's just as simple to produce. And like, I, well, when I first started driving the Tesla, I said, this feels like driving a slot racer. That's what I because mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it equated to that and golf carts. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> um, you know, this is another thing that this article really pointed out and did, I thought, a great job talking about. Um, but it made the point because firms old and new are starting from scratch, EV buyers may put less store 
on established brands. That's true. Who the hell's BYD? But people are buying them in droves. Right. Right? Yes. Now, what is interesting here is, and how does this fall into the stuff that we've been talking about? Is there going to be an emerging subscription model for cars? And I think I may have talked about this. I don't know if it was on a bonus episode or it was on, on the show, but my, my brother-in-law has a Land Rover. And one of the things that Land Rover allows you to do when you buy the car is if you go to the UK, they'll give you one to drive while you're there. That's, that's, <laughs> cool. part, that's part of the, the ownership. The ownership. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. But and I think that's that's a brilliant thing, right? To 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 say, and and especially of people who are who know, and and my sister in law um, is, uh, I think she was actually born in the UK, although she's got a Southern accent. She was grew up grew up here in Texas, but you know she has, still has family over there. So the fact that they know that they're going to go back on a fairly frequent basis, even if it's a couple times, you know, one once every two or three years, oh, but I don't have to worry about a car because it's going to be there. That's Porsche drive. Are you listening? Yeah. Hello. Oh, I know. Hello. Yeah. You come to Germany, get a Porsche. You know, yeah. It's part of your subscription. Part rather of your than, subscription. Rather than pausing it, Ed, mm-hmm. for when they spend six months in the south of France. And 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 with the the because this I think will be the, the case that the this driverless technology will be able to at least at a minimum get out of some storage facility and pick you up curbside at an airport. Right. That's wild. And this article also talks about the tech wars. This is a good point. He says it's easier for a tech firm to make cars than it is for a car maker to become a tech company. Oh, no question. This is why they're all teaming up with software companies, right? GM and Ford and all the legacy guys. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, McKinsey reckons that only about 8% of uh, our petrol heads you know, the people, the leaders of, uh, or I'm sorry, car buyers, only about 8% of them are real car people. Um, they talk about customers don't care about panel gaps. They care more about software updates and keeping, uh, you know, keeping the experience better. Um, and then they also talked about car makers that want to do everything are set up for expensive failure, but those relying 100% on an external software stack are the worst case for brand equity. Um, they can, they should only concentrate on what they can do better. So there mm. needs to be a healthy trade-off there between those two. They, can, they can't do it all, but, but they also can't outsource everything. Mm-hmm. Either. Um, so it, it talked about that. And then it went on to say that um, in car mad America, around 890 cars per thousand, only 1% of new cars are bought by people under the age of 24. So we have 890 cars per thousand people in America, but only 1% of, of new cars are bought by people below the age of 24. Average buyer of a new car in Europe and America is well over 50. Hmm. Kind of interesting. Um, and then they talked about the ride hailing and car sharing. They've not lived up to their early promise lift and, and, uh, Uber and DD, by the way, have never turned an annual profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they talked about if we start imposing tariffs, right? We already impose a tariff on Chinese cars, 27 and a half percent. 
this is going to be one of the things going to make BYD a little bit more of a challenge to, you know, break into America. Um, and then EU levies 10% on Chinese cars. Uh, but even the cheaper models, they say, could still be competitive. Uh, and then they end by saying EVs, they're not as profitable as ICE cars. Um, but they say the switch is from one-time transaction to lifetime engagement. That's the only time the article hinted at subscription, but it never yeah. really got, it never, it never, never got there. That out. Um, and Sony is teaming up with Honda to make EVs and Alibaba, Huawei, Tencent, and Xiaomi all have designs on the industry as well. That's amazing. <laughs> Sony and Honda. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Well, we're up against our last break, Ron. want to remind those of you listening that you contact either one of us by sending one email at asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise. Show notes, previews to upcoming shows. We'd also love for you to rate this podcast. You can do that by going to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. We love to hear from you. We do read all reviews, positive or negative, on the air. So if you want to be part of that, please let us know. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise. We're talking about Mishmash, a conglomeration of different articles that we've come across in the last little bit, but wanted to give a little deeper dive treatment to. Ron, what do you got for us in this last segment? Last segment is I have a business breakthrough. This is from Paul Shrimpling. Um, his podcast is Humanize the Numbers. He does these things called business breakthroughs where he'll, he'll focus on a topic and kind of give a rundown, talk about books in the 
in the in the uh, idea and all that. This one kind of focused on the book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth by Amy Edmondson. She's mm-hmm. a Harvard Business Review professor. She We talked about her and her book with Chris Strickland when he was on talking about his latest book that he did with the three other Air Force pilots. They they all talked about this, this gal's book um, and psychological safety. And I guess the book talks about Project Aristotle, which was a multi-year study of 180 teams at Google that looked at the t- each team's composition. They looked at their educational backgrounds, their skills, their personality traits, you know, probably DISC or something, right? Um, none of these factors were decisive in the effectiveness of a team. What was decisive was a psychologically safe work environment where they had clear goals, dependable colleagues, meaningful and impactful work were all very important, but psychological safety was essential. And so what is psychological safety? It's a shared belief within a group that it is safe to take interpersonal risks without fear of negative consequences for one's self-image, status, or career. So it's trust and respect one another, basically. Um, feel fear, if, uh, able to speak openly with candor in any situation. Uh, and this is, the, this is uh, the premise of her book. She writes um, a lot in the book about her work with a hospital. So I think this is one of the reasons you're starting to see after action reviews come into like the ICU ward that I sat in on. Um, but she points out that psychological safety should be a key component of any workplace culture as it allows for enhanced collaboration, increased learning and growth, improved performance, healthy conflict resolution, and well-being and retention. Um, and then she goes on to list the skills needed, you know, active listening, empathy, trust building, feedback. Not, no mention of after-action reviews, which I kind of find amazing. Um, but I, I think there's something to this as, as much as I don't like the term psychological safety. Um, there is something about being able to sit in, in a group amongst your peers and your boss and admit mistakes. Yeah. And, and the, I'm, I've interviewed a couple of people at, at Sage on my other podcast, the Sage Thought Leadership Podcast, on psychological safety and 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 some and the, there's been an uptick in conversation about it ar- around Sage as well. You know, pretty. You know, I what I, I get. Yeah, trust. It's bu- building trust. I don't. I I don't see what it's necessarily different from a concept of we need to build trust and allow people to to make mistakes and do all of that stuff. I, so, you know, don't be a jerkwad. I mean, what, what, what's, what, what is, what is the new concept here is what I'm missing. It's an, another name and maybe that's helpful for people to reframe it in a different context. I'm totally open to that. But right. other than that, I'm missing like, well, isn't this just about building trust inside an organization? Isn't that all this is about? Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I haven't read the book yet, but, um, if she doesn't talk about after action reviews, I'd be really, I'd be really curious. I think that's a big hole because that's like the perfect format or, or tool or process to right. this. Right. And I mean, I mean, and in even the, the, the ground rules for the after action review, it's stated that there's no personal criticisms that you can, you can criticize situations, but not people as individuals. 
uh, whether that's principle of psychological safety, I don't know, but certainly it's, it's something that we talked about, that there's no hierarchy in, in an after action review. That's another important principle of that as well. And I would imagine if that's, is that psycho part of psychological safety that, hey, we're all at the same level here when it comes to having a conversation about what's going on. You know, that, so maybe what this is really also more talking about, Ron, is, is uh, just bringing the, 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 the after action review as a perpetual tool that you're always in an after action review type mode or type situation. I'm totally in favor of that. That sounds like great. Like, I'd love, love to work in that environment, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually reading a book now by a guy who's a, not only was he an F-16 pilot in the Air Force, he's now an F-35 pilot and, and an instructor. And he talks about how they do it, how they, you know, he says, we, we, we don't teach facts, we train concepts. He's basically saying we teach theory, mm-hmm. not facts. Um, but he said, he talks about the debrief, of course, is what they call it in the Air Force, uh, and the importance of it. He says, you know, look, we can only fly for two hours. He says, and we're out of fuel unless we get refueled in the sky. He said, but we come back down and we, we'll do a four hour debrief. Uh, but he talked about one of the ways they train the, the new pilots coming in is with a pre-brief where they, they're in a classroom setting and they, they get somebody up to the front, stand up, and the, the instructor grills them on various situations that they could encounter in the air. You know, what would happen if the enemy did this or made this maneuver, or this happened to your craft or whatever, and they have to sit there and respond. He said, they're, they're the most intense things you, you could ever go through. Because, you know, you're in front of everybody, you're in front of all your colleagues, and of course your instructor's grilling you, you have to think on your feet and all of that. But um, he said, look, it's, it's a, you know, we have to make decisions under unbelievable uncertainty and we have to do it very rapidly. So it's yep. just a really good book, talks about decision-making and uncertainty with heuristics and, and all of that. I'm, I'm really getting a lot out of it. I think it's going to be one of my top books for the year. Oh, good, good. Well, I just want to uh, tag one thing onto the back of this. We've only got about two minutes left, but but this is a, a, an article by Daniel Hood out of th- this month's uh, accounting today. Mm. He's quoting this guy, William Pirelli, from uh, the AICPA's uh, past uh, a, a chair, uh, William Pirelli. Right. And, right. and and this, this is the direct quote here. Uh, 75% of revenue in a, in a profession is still generated by the billable hour. So we talk a lot about realization and utilization because it matters. Here's the pull quote, Ron, and how it ties into psychological safety. Timesheets are not evil, though what we do with them sometimes is. And here's where I'm going to tie this all together. This is like right out of the, this is the, that's the Soviet Union. It's, it, it, it's the same Unbelievable. thing. Unbelievable. I, I know it is the Bill. it is the tool it, it 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 is time tracking that is the problem. It's the ideology. That's right. It's the ideology around the timesheet that it's is not the, the problem. People who implement it. Nope. Nope. Yeah. I, so, it, there's no good way to implement a crappy idea, and it's. I know. I I don't know what it takes to get people over that hump. You know. But, I I I I. I dispute is 75% figure. Although I guess that's how it depends on how you cut it. Right. Right. Number of firms and size of firm, but yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, Ron, this has been great. We really appreciate uh, you, you uh, sharing all of this stuff with us and having this conversation. <laughs> Hopefully we're, we're able to clear it out. Your staff. Well, <laughs> no, it's not. Cause I'm sure you've got way more 
the so we, maybe we'll have we'll de- definitely have to do do this again and maybe we'll call it a rummage sale or something cool we'll cool yeah garage sale <laughs> excellent uh, all right all right well man. yep so th- th- that's it i guess i'll see you in 167 hours sounds good This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>